When tragedy strikes, it always causes pain. But that pain and those trials and suffering change people in various ways. The pain may be universal, but the result of that pain may vary. And this may be generalizing, but I think it makes people either bitter or better. Suffering makes people either bitter or sometimes it makes them better. And sometimes it takes going through bitterness that you get to a better place, but some people actually stay bitter. Some people end up tremendously transformed in ways that you would be surprised by. I was reflecting back on a tragedy that struck our church, I think about 16 years ago, maybe even 17 years ago. Our youth group especially is struck, and then the Coe family, a senior in our youth group, Johnson, passed away suddenly and unexpectedly right, right around graduation. Went to bed and never woke up. Tragedy. And looking back, I remember sitting uh, with many of our youth, not only in our church community, but he went to a local high school and affected that high school, and many of the youth were going through significant doubts, which were expected. Some anger also expected. Some were going through bitterness with God, and some left God. But some came out of that bitterness and anger and frustration and sadness, strong in Christ. Many of those young people are in our church, leading in our church, transformed by that great suffering. How do you face suffering and trials and pain and keep going? Actually not become bitter, but better. Why are some entrenched in bitterness while others are transformed? We've been looking at Job and we see a man who was extraordinarily blessed and also undergoes some of the most extraordinary tragedy, who loses everything in a short period of time. Family, wealth, health, gone. We've looked at how to avoid being miserable comforters as we're in these cycles of speeches. We've also looked at how to trust in the Lord, who's our Redeemer. Today, I want to speak on how we can face suffering and pain and trials without being entrenched in bitterness, but by being transformed. This isn't something you can actually force on someone else, especially they're in the midst of that suffering themselves. That may actually end up being miserable as you try and challenge someone to be transformed. That's not what I'm encouraging, but some of us may be at a place where we can, by ourselves, reflect upon the suffering and pain and desire more out of it. We may get to a place where we can see God like Job sees God, even in the midst of darkness, he, he is seeing glimpses of where God is and long for more and long for transformation. And maybe you're in that place. You've, you've kind of wandered through darkness and anger and suffering and you're, you're wrestling with that bitterness. You're not entrenched in it. You want more of that of the Lord and more transformation. My hope is that our church would not only be good at comfort and support but also face tragedies coming out the other side, or, or maybe even if it's a lifelong one, it met in the middle of that being transformed more into the image of Jesus. So we're going to look at chapter 23, which is in the midst of the third cycle of speeches and how to face suffering and come out transformed. Three points to help us understand this. There's a posture that we have to have towards God. We need to remember there is a place for doubt 
and we need to also continue to pursue God. Great three-point P sermon. Posture, place, and pursue. So posture, what is our posture towards God? If we want to go through suffering and come out transformed, we have to understand Job's posture and embrace that posture ourselves. Remember, Job is not a sinless man, but he is experiencing innocent suffering. His friends don't have a category for someone who's innocent who can suffer. And so even though they try and comfort him, they end up exhausting Job with endless arguments. They go round and around. Eliphaz in chapter 22 makes it very clear that he has no category for innocent suffering. That suffering is always the result of sin. There's always a cause and effect. That's his theological category. He feels so convinced about this that he begins to accuse, even make up sins that Job might have done, therefore therefore condemning him. In chapter 22, he says, there's no end to your sins. You don't care for the widows. You don't care for the weak. He's attacking Job. He's not really a friend. This is why we call them so-called friends. What we need to understand is that Job, if he's actually an innocent sufferer, threatens Eliphaz's theology, threatens his understanding of God, threatens even his own life. If Job can actually maintain faithfulness in the midst of suffering, even though those suffering were not caused by his sins, then that means for Eliphaz and the other friends, so-called friends, that can also happen to them. That means all of their good behaviors would actually not be any defense against suffering. But if Job is actually lying, living in sin, then their paradigm holds. And so this is an understanding we need to grasp. They're challenging Job because of their theological categories are being threatened. Even their own lives are kind of in flux at this point. Because if Job truly is innocent, and this suffering is not because of something he's done, it can happen to them. They're threatened by that. This is why their conversations are not really trying to comfort Job. They're actually trying to comfort themselves. Like what one scholar says, Eric Ortland, he says, as we speak to suffering, suffering people he means, we must constantly be asking ourselves who we are really trying to comfort, our friend or ourselves. It's clear to us as we read in hindsight that the friend or so-called friends are trying to comfort themselves. They feel threatened by what is happening to Job because their own lives may also be threatened and that their goodness would not stand up as a defense against suffering. Job in chapter 23, this cycle, he actually doesn't even try. The first few times you see Job responding to his so-called friends, by the time Eliphaz is just accusing him, making up sins, in chapter 23, he doesn't even answer him anymore. He just stops talking to him. He ignores them. And actually, that's wisdom. Sometimes it's really good and spiritual and righteous just to ignore your so-called friends because what they're saying is actually completely unhelpful. So there's a spiritual category for putting on do not disturb on your phone or ghosting someone. There's a spiritual category for that when they're actually just condemning you. It may be actually good and wise because they're no longer helpful. And he just turns his attention directly to the Lord. He no longer answers his friend. We see in chapter 23, he is turning his posture, his heart, his words towards the Lord directly. And we see this posture that I think is fundamental to understanding how to go through suffering and not become entrenched in bitterness, but actually become transformed. And his posture towards God 
is one where he seeks God for who God is, not for what he gets. His posture towards God is that he wants God for just who he is, his presence. That's what he longs for the most, not because of what he wants to receive as secondary blessings from God. This is, it may seem so simple to say that, but this is so fundamental to not only our relationship with God and being an authentic one, but also for understanding how to go through difficult seasons. He seeks God for God, not what he gets. His friends are actually urging Job to repent, not just so he can get God back. If you read the speeches carefully, they're saying, repent because then you'll get back the life you had. He'll get back his health and wealth. But if he actually repents just to get back what he lost, even though he's not actually sinned, not only would he be lying to God, he would be compromising his own integrity just to get back his stuff, which actually would prove the accuser in chapter 1 correct, that he only wants God because of the blessings. God, in the so-called friends theology, is just a dispenser of blessing. They actually uphold the religious perspective of every other religious paradigm in the world. You see this very fundamentally in the Greek view of gods, which are very angry and need to be appeased or need to be manipulated to dispense blessing. The motive that the friends have is to come to God just to get back what they had. And maybe that's our motive of coming to God. We need to ask ourselves that question at times. Do we want God because of what he gives to us by his hand? Or do we want God because we want to know his heart? It's a very trying and difficult question to ask ourselves. Do we have a motive of coming to God merely to get stuff? Some of us may claim Christ but relate to God in this non-Christian way of just wanting his things, not wanting him. And Job, notice, if you read him carefully, this is why I suggested at the beginning, this is, I, I did this kind of wrestling in the beginning of reading carefully the entire book in multiple one sittings to wrestle. And I noticed, I was struck by the fact that not one time did Job ever ask for any of his things back. The thing that messed him up the most was the seams of God is not there. Because he wants God for God, not just his stuff. Let me put this in a form of another kind of question, which may get at the heart of this. You want, would you want heaven without God? Would you want heaven without God? Some people say, I, I would take heaven as long as blank is there. Grandma's there. My spouse is there. As long as they're there, it's all good. Whether God is there or not doesn't really matter as long as blank is there. It's a strange question, right? Would you take heaven without God? Because there's no such thing as heaven without God because his presence is what makes heaven what it is. But that question does reveal, I think, and it's helpful to ask ourselves because it reveals the nature of our hearts. Do we want God or just his blessings? Job's desire isn't to return to the old way of his life. He's not even trying to embrace a new normal 
What he wants is God's presence because it seems as if God is gone. Look what he says in verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. Lost his presence. He wants God for God. Say you're married and you say something, or maybe you're in a dating relationship and you say something stupid to your spouse or significant other, which is every other moment for me, all the time. Maybe that's the same with you. You say something and you know when you say something or do something that is hurtful or annoying to the other person, there's that disconnect in your relationship. Something happens. There's that disconnect and things aren't exactly the way they were even just a few moments ago. So there's that disconnect and you try to ask, well, do you, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to watch a movie? That you just can't go on, right? And so if there's that disconnect, what do you do? You should go and seek for forgiveness. You should apologize. You could seek reconciliation, which is so simple to say, but so hard to do, isn't it, at times? But the goal, when there's that disconnect, isn't just to receive forgiveness. It's actually to receive the other person because the disconnect isn't the only issue. It's that you're separated from the individual. It's to be connected in relationship again. is isn't just a release from guilt. Imagine if you said to your spouse, well, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, and then they forgave you and said, oh, that's all good. That's all I needed. See ya. And you just left because all you wanted was the forgiveness and the release of the guilt that you are feeling. Job wants God. He doesn't just want stuff. He doesn't just want to have answers. He wants God. He expresses it in wanting to plead his case before him because he wants to be with him. Look what he says in verse 4. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He wants to be pardoned if he needs to be pardoned because he wants to get God's presence again. Using legal words, what he wants is a relationship. And what you see beginning here in the third cycle is a shift. He still fears God ignoring him, right? If you look at the end of chapter 23, therefore, I am terrified at his presence. He actually has respect and awe of God. When I consider I am in dread of him, he understands that this is a holy God. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced because of the darkness. So he's living in the tension. He understands there's a fear still, possibly still condemned for something he doesn't understand. But now you see him expressing in this chapter, there's hope of pardon. That tension exists for him. Look at verse 7. There was an up, there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. He's understanding that there's a hope here, that someone could argue on his behalf and be bold to argue in arbitrate for him because he wants to be in relationship with God again. And this is for us, and as we read this as New Testament believers in Jesus, we know this is something we have confidently in Christ. Right? The, the best case any of us have before God is not the one we can present. What would we present? Even the best of our abilities, the best of our good, the best of any moment of my life. Is that enough? What can we present? What case can we present to a holy God who's gracious in everything, who deserves all glory and praise? What could I even do to argue my case? But the best case Christians have, we all know this, is the grace of the case that Jesus presents on our behalf. If we're alone to present our own case, 
we'll be ignored. Rightfully so. We would be dead. We'd be rightfully terrified. But Jesus comes and accomplishes for us all that we need to be pardoned. Because he presents the case of himself dying on our behalf. He presents himself taking the condemnation that we fear. That's why we have hope before God. Peter, in his first letter, he says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, we might, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. He died so we could be brought safe before the Lord with a perfect case of Jesus' perfect life and death on our behalf. And so there's a boldness, regardless of sins, that we can come before him, that there would be judge to acquit us. Job hopes for that. His posture towards God is he wants that to be renewed with him. We have the confidence in this side of the cross that that is a secure case in Christ. That is good news. That's what gives us strength before the Lord, that you can come before him. Jesus presents to us and to the Father, ultimately, perfect case. That's the posture we need to have towards the Lord. One that wants the Lord for himself. We can come before him as New Testament Christians because we know that there is a case that the Lord has provided on our behalf that will stand. That despite my sins that I have committed, despite all the brokenness in my life, despite the things that I will do, that there's something secure for me that will bring me into relationship with the Lord again. Second, we need to remember there is a place or doubt. And Job, he, he says things, and if you read this, maybe it sounds contradictory, but I think this is the tension of a real person going through real pains who's trying to uphold both the things that he's afraid of but also the things he's hoping in. And he expresses that there's a place for doubt in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Look what he says in verse 8 to 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. And in the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I do not see him. So he says that right as he's also saying, there's going to be a judge who can equip me. How can he say both these things? I think he reminds us that as we are trying to go through suffering better on the other side, we need to make room for doubt. Many times in your life, you're going to ask or you're asking, where are you, God? How long, God? When, God? What is happening, God? We'll ask those questions. Maybe not out loud always. Maybe with tears. Maybe with yelling. Or maybe with anger. I don't know about you guys, but I'm very sick sometimes when I see those bumper stickers cars, upper sticker theology, like, keep calm. (laughs) Every time I see one of those keep calm ones, especially if it's a Christian version of it, I just want to, like, ram that car. I'm just so angry. Like, I don't want to keep, don't tell me to keep calm. Especially if I'm in the midst of pain and suffering. Right? He's wrestling. He's holding these things in tension. He's expressing his doubts. Some of you have been there, right? Some of you are there right now. You're frustrated with the Lord. You want to see evidence of his work or his presence, and you just don't, and you have doubts. 
And I think this is what happens, unfortunately, with many people who have doubts. You feel like you can't share that you have a doubt. Because somehow in Western Christianity, we've almost made it like a terrible, unforgivable sin to have doubt. Right? If you share it with anyone that you have a doubt, they're just going to call you Thomas forever. Right? That's what they're going to do. Doubt is like that dirty thing that can't exist for some reason. So I end up being that, especially in a culture that has more honor and shame a part of it, you just never verbalize that you have doubts. Right? And so we then create this immature surface Christianity that has no room for wrestling. Right? You, you start sharing a community group, you start sharing with a friend or start sharing with a mentor, you doubt something. No, 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 I've never. I, and then that person says, I've never had doubts. I never had struggles with God. I mean, God has been awesome to me. And then they just talk about how great their relationship with the Lord is. And then you feel like, well, you just can't say anything. And then what we do is we bury it, right? We bury our doubts. But once in a while, you find somehow by the grace of God, other people who have doubts. Then you create a secret club of doubters. And then you start judging all the other people who don't, have, who don't seem to have doubts. And then we end up doing something worse, right? We, we have this club of doubters that judge other people who seem like they don't have doubts. That's what we end up doing. I've done that before. That's how I know. Right. But what does that get you? I, I think that's not helpful either just to wallow only in doubt. But I think maybe the corrective from our church community is at least first to recognize that even for those of us who've been walking with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years, there are moments in our life, experiences that come, pains that cause us to doubt. And wrestling with the Lord means that there is room for that. Especially, you notice Job is bringing those doubts to the Lord. He's no longer even addressing his friends anymore. He's just saying, God, these things to God. You see, read the Psalms. You see this Tremendous emotional pain being brought to God. Genuine faith doesn't go around or circumvent doubt. It doesn't ignore doubt. It doesn't pretend doubt doesn't exist. It goes through them. Dostoevsky, he said this, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born in a furnace of doubt. He actually became believers through wrestling and struggling and having a place for doubt. First out of doubt. I think actually that's the regular, normal way of real Christianity. It's not this superficial, happy-go-lucky, everything is fine. It's that you go through the pains of doubt. Sometimes, actually not sometimes, the Christian life isn't a whole bunch of people running at full speed. It's a whole bunch of limpers, and people who have knee injuries, and calf injuries. I'm thinking about my upcoming training, so that's why I'm thinking about that illustration right now. But it's not common to just have everything go your way. It's often through difficulty. And in the middle of that, he still makes bold proclamations and declarations of hope. Those things are coexisting. It's a struggle. It's a doubt. He's professing still the hope being acquitted 
that God will be there. He's looking for his seat. He, he knows he's not completely gone, even though he feels as if he's gone. He's asserting this commitment to God, even in the midst of dark suffering. That's where we get to this last part of walking through suffering, coming out better, is that we need to, in the midst of that, not only have a posture of wanting God for God and remembering there's a place for doubt, we need to pursue God. Job demonstrates for us what it looks like to pursue God. I think some of us wrongly think, well, trials come and we just kind of take it. And we just do nothing and just that's it. We just kind of sit around and wait. And either pretend it's all good or just kind of wait it out. That's actually not what scripture ever says. Job models for us that there's a pursuit of God. There's a walking with God, even in the midst of that. Even though you may feel like it's all dark. Maybe even you're, you're feeling this frustration. There's a, there's a walking and pursuing still of the Lord. And we see a couple things demonstrated by him here. As you are in the midst of that, if you want to come out not entrenched in bitterness, you want to come out transformed, you want to pursue God by pursuing his word, walking in his word. Look what he says in verse 11 to 12. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and am not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In all of the unknown, he still pursues what he does know about God. In all of the variables he cannot control, and in all of the variables that we cannot control, when we're going through the mist of suffering, we know that God's word is constant. So we come back to the word. We wrestle through the word. In a dry season, I know this, because this is the embarrassing uh, truth about pastors who are going through difficult times, is that we may be communicators of God's word. We may be people who study God's word so we can understand and teach. But I know in my own heart when I'm going through difficult seasons, the very last thing at times sometimes I want is God's word. And I know that must be the same for you then, right? You go through dry seasons, suffering. You don't want it anymore. You, don't, you stop digesting it. You stop coming to it because you're just mad at him. And there may be moments where that, there's a space for that. But if you live in that moment where you don't come to his word anymore, you don't digest it, you don't have meals from it, then you will continue to be malnourished. That's why often throughout the Bible, the, the word of the Lord is compared to food. Just like you cannot live indefinitely without physical food, you will not spiritually live. You don't come back and nourish yourself, even just a little bit. Job doesn't turn aside. He comes back to the word. Job suffers more than any person I've ever met in my entire life. There are probably people in this earth who suffers exactly like Job. I have not yet met someone personally like that. But Job, who suffers so extraordinarily, who doesn't even sense God's presence at all, still continues to come back to his word because he knows that his nourishment like food. He esteems it higher than food. Those of us who ever fasted for any period of time, I'm not talking about just, you know, 
the nighttime, like breaking fast in the morning, eating breakfast, not just those four to eight, hopefully you sleep more than four hours, but at least that, you know, not, I'm not talking about that eight hours you're sleeping. Those of you who fasted intentionally for not just intermittent, not for even dire reasons, if you fasted for an extended period of time, you know, when you first eat any food, <laughs> it is amazing. All food just takes so, so good, doesn't it? Job, he's expressing, I've treasured his words of his mouth more than my portion of food. He understands. Come back to his word. I think we too easily give up on the nourishment we need in seasons of suffering. So if you're in that, my encouragement to you, maybe it seems so simple to say that, but I understand when you're in that season and you're frustrated and angry, that last thing you want is that. But that's actually the very thing we need. To be nourished, feasting on the word, walking in the word. Encouragement to you, if you were in that place, maybe you were wrestling with suffering for the last week, or maybe just yesterday, something to your heart. Maybe you didn't sleep at all last night because something was on your heart. Very first thing I would encourage you to do is sleep. Sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is just sleep. And when you sleep, get rest and you wake up the next day, maybe still exhausted by the weariness of your soul, still is to come back. Open the word. Read Job. Sit with the Psalms. Nourish your soul because the, the further you are away from this word, the more malnourished you are. As you want to come out of that suffering stronger, you need this more than anything else. Second, trust need to surrender and yield. You need to trust God's sovereignty. Look at verse 10. But he knows the way I take when he has tried me. I wrestle with this this week. Trusting God's sovereignty. Is it, is it a comfort for you to know that God knows all of your ways? To Job, it's a comfort that God knows all his ways. God knows all the steps, all the thoughts, all the words, all the actions, all the hairs of Job. To Job, it's a comfort. God knows everything. His heart, his motives, his behavior, his relationships, his circumstances, his friendships. It is true that God knows everything, not just at the surface, but he knows everything, every bit of it. Past, present, future. Does that bring you comfort or not? It brings Job comfort, actually, because he's confident of his sinlessness in terms of at least this moment, something he has done that he needs to repent of. Does it concern you, though, that God knows your way? If it concerns you, you should be concerned. <laughs> are, you, are you living in a way God in life living in a way of his wrath. Two ways in the scriptures. Broad is the way to destruction. But narrow is the path of faith. And few are on it. And if that concerns you, I encourage you to listen to that still small voice that may be pricking you right now. That is likely the Holy Spirit waking you up to hear what God is trying to warn you about too. Make you concerned about 
path are you on? If you're in Christ, God knowing all of our ways brings us comfort. And God, when he, when he looks at Joey, he's not caught off guard. And that's super encouraging to me. When God looks at me, it's not like he, you know, he's busy during Saturday and Sunday morning. Oh, Joey's about to teach. I'm going to take a look at Joey. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Like, Joey, I just left you for a day. And what's going on this morning? He's not caught off. By my sinfulness, by my brokenness, by my trials, by my suffering, by my anger, by my grief. It's not like he looks at us and is surprised in Christ. It's not like he looks at me on Monday morning and say, okay, heavenly host, we got to call a meeting. What's the best option for operating on Joey's life? God is not surprised. He knows all of my way. He knows all of your way. And if I'm Christ, if you are in Christ, there is grace. There is a case that's been presented on our behalf. God knows your way. And it is the greatest thing that God knows our way despite your seasons. Look what he says in verses 10 to 12 again. But he knows the way I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not have turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. God knows his way. And he will come out as gold. Do you believe that about your life? Don't be discouraged if you are facing trials. Though the suffering is real and painful and you need people to comfort you in that, but know this in your heart. That even as God knows your ways and even though you're in the midst of suffering, his sovereignty is for his glory and our good. That's why in the New Testament, Paul can say this in two different places, in two different ways. He says this in Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Or in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Are you confident of the outcome? God's work in your life. In Christ, you're gold. Gold doesn't fear fire. Gold, as it faces fire, becomes purified and becomes beautiful. It becomes useful. Again, as we look at that confidence and trusting God's work in our life in the midst of that suffering, it's not because we're so good not because we're relying on ourselves. It's not because we're saying, well, I have all these things that justify myself. No, the Bible is clear. Your faith in Christ is more precious than gold, which means the Holy Spirit is changing you in that, shaping you to be more like Jesus. I, I know very little about what it means to be a goldsmith, though my, my reading of it, my understanding of it, I, I got really interested in blacksmithing during the pandemic. So I became friends with a blacksmith and tried to understand that and look at his work. I remember reading through it, though, but I read through a goldsmith, and he says, when you're working on gold and you put it through fire, the purpose of doing that is to raise to the surface impurities to remove it. And a goldsmith knows his work is done when the goldsmith can see his own reflection or her own reflection in the gold. Such a beautiful analogy, isn't it? 
God is shaping you. If you're in the midst of that fire, and the Bible often talks about suffering and trials and pain as fire. If you're in Christ, you're gold. And what's happening in the midst of that is what God will do in the middle of that is eventually see more of Christ in you. Going through the fire is revealing and also strengthened. I thought about the people I'm most drawn to in my life. I thought about all the people I've looked up to as mentors. I realized the thing that all of those individuals had in common was that they all suffered. They all suffered in significant ways and all looked like someone that only Jesus could sitting down my first year of seminary, wrestling with all kinds of things, probably some relationship things, some with calling things, some with what am I doing with my life? Why am I paying so much money to go to seminary? I make no money later, all those kinds of things. <laughs> and I remember sitting with one of my professors that first year of seminary. And I don't know what caused him to share this, Maybe he wanted to get my eyes off my own self-pity because I tend to do that. But he shared with me the, the seasons of his life where he, he lost his, he was buried, but his current wife was his second wife because his first wife died uh, when they were young. And he shared that journey. He shared that pain. He shared in such honesty that it quite surprised me. And I remember it wasn't just the sharing of that, but as I observed him, throughout the years and still in touch with him now uh, over almost 20 years later seeing what God has been doing in his life why I look up to him because he's someone who's reflecting more and more of Jesus those in our church this is the same in our church I've sat with people in our church who oh man and just you just stir my heart and you I sit down with you and you encourage me so greatly because in the midst of suffering, you're coming through and you look more like Jesus. Some of you have lost spouses, children, wrestled with all those things. You look like Jesus. That is amazing. And I praise God for you. Friends, in the midst of that suffering, as you trust God through that Know that you are gold. You're being made more and more into the image of Jesus. Friends, that is encouraging. Friends, Jesus did not promise us no trials. but He promised to be with us. And it's often not taking us out of it, unfortunately. It's through it. That's why I want to close with Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, because God is with you. That's right.